tear down this wall. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I'm not a crook. If you like your health care plan, you'll be able to keep your health care plan. Source for the latest news on money, politics, prophecy, and preparedness. And now your host, the editor-in-chief of ChristianMoney.com and the author of more than 30 books, Jim Paris. All right, welcome to our guest segment. We're so excited to have back with us our special guest, Derek Gilbert. You have told us, folks, listeners, that he's one of your favorite guests. He's one of my favorite guests. He's been in radio, I guess, for almost 40 years. In addition to that, presently hosts a TV show over at Skywatch TV. He's got a podcast. And like every time I turn around, there's a new book that he has out. So I don't know how he does it, but I love the fact that his new book, Veneration, is actually co-authored with his wife. And he's a smart man because his wife's name goes first. It's Sharon K. Gilbert and Derek P. Gilbert. And Derek Gilbert, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Thank you, Jim. It's an honor to be here. And uh, I know uh, a lot of people are having super cold weather. Are you uh, facing that yourself? You're in Missouri, right? Yes, we're in southwest Missouri. We had a couple of cold days this past week. It got down to single digits a couple of nights, but uh, today was actually pretty pleasant. We got up into the mid-50s, so uh, can't complain. And we we don't mind getting some cold weather now and again because it kind of knocks down the bugs in the summertime. There you go. Yeah. So my my aunt lives in Chicago and she sent me a picture of like her backyard, which is totally a whiteout. And she said it's 14 below zero. And so I replied back to her. <laughs> I replied back to her. I said, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. It's 75 here. I've got the slider, the, the sliding glass door open and I'm putting together some new furniture. So I always love the chance to kind of, you know, share my Florida good, good fortune. But in the summer, when it's like 100 degrees here, you know, we, we don't have a lot to, to be happy about at least two or three months out of the year. So this new book, you know, we have had uh, as a regular guest over the years, L.A. Marzulli. We've had other people come on to talk about biblical giants. But this book seems like it's 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 about that. But it kind of it goes in a different direction, because one of the things I, I listened to several of your interviews on the book that this is all throughout Scripture, but it's not obviously all throughout scripture and a lot of people just continue to go back to genesis 6 which i get that but your book takes us throughout scripture making the point uh you know who are these biblical giants and that they are coming back uh tell me about the approach that the book took in that uh in that way well sharon and i realized as we were doing research uh and we kind of researched together she writes mainly fiction Uh, she's got a six novel series now called uh, the Red Wing Saga, and a lot of the research that goes into my nonfiction stuff goes into her fiction stuff. And we realized as we were kind of pulling on the threads of the biblical Rephaim, which have kind of intrigued me because it's it's a, one of those weird things in the Bible. Um, and, and it's kind of what lured me into all of this. And I, I blame Marzulli because when I was, <laughs> the first time I heard of the Nephilim, was when I was th- I was 35 years old already, and I finally heard a, a, a an evangelist preaching on Genesis chapter six. So I went to our local library in St. Louis, uh, and and found his novel because that was the only thing I had. So 
read that and was intrigued. Thought, okay, well, this is really strange, but this is in the Bible, so Jesus validated that this was real. And so I kind of filed that away in my back of my mind because that would have been around 1998 or nine. Uh, but anyway, as we began researching the, the archaeology that uh, kind of supports the stories in the Bible, the history that's in the Bible, uh, began to realize that the neighbors of ancient Israel, they they knew who the Rephaim were, and it was pretty clear that they were pretty important. And so as we kept digging on it and, you know, included some of that research in my first couple of nonfiction books, The Great Inception and Last Clash of the Titans, Sharon said, they keep coming up. We need to do a book just on them. And as we really started digging into it and finding out what archaeologists and historians have discovered about the pagan neighbors of ancient Israel, we found that what we discovered, I can't say we discovered it because, again, these uh, secular archaeologists really discovered it, but we just filtered it through a biblical lens. What we put together in the book Veneration is the religion of the Nephilim, the the religion inspired by the Nephilim, the the cult worship that they inspired, which continues down to this day, we argue. And and really, this is a companion, um, a complement to the work that L.A. Marzulli and Steve Quayle and Tom Horn have been doing over the years, looking for physical evidence, you know, Timothy Alberino, uh, physical evidence of the giants. We decided, rather than repeat what they're doing, we wanted to go in a different direction and look at the uh, the worship that they inspired. And once we started pulling on those threads, we realized they're woven all the way through the Bible from beginning to end. Now, for those people aren't, that aren't familiar with the Nephilim and this whole idea of biblical giants, Genesis 6, tell, give us the background on that. And, and where do these giants come from? We'll kind of lay a little bit of a foundation before we get into the meat of the book. Sure. This is one of those weird sections that most pastors won't get into because they've only got a limited amount of time on Sunday morning, and really this is a can of worms to open. But uh, in Genesis chapter 6, the first four verses, we're told that when man began to multiply in the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And what's important to know there is that the word, the phrase, sons of God in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, always, always, always means supernatural beings, angels, if you will. I mean, it's used in the New Testament, but different context. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew phrase, B'nai Ha-Elohim, translated sons of God, always refers to angels. It's weird. Verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth, or the giants were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God, these angels, came into the daughters of man, and that's what we call a euphemism, uh, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. What we found is we started looking at the texts that have been translated by scholars who research the the Amorites who dominated the culture around ancient Israel from the time of Abraham down to about the time of the judges. Uh, But they really sort of established the the religious uh, culture of the ancient Near East, uh, down even down to the time of Jesus, really. And, um, we, we realized as we were looking at this that this veneration or worship of what the pagans thought were their dead ancestors was really the worship of these spirits of the mighty men who were of old, these giants who lived before the flood, who were destroyed in the flood of Noah. Now, the connection there is uh, not found in the Bible, but it's uh, or not implicit in the Bible, let's say, but it is... Uh, 
or rather explicit. It is implicit. It's implied, especially in Isaiah and Ezekiel, uh, that these spirits were the uh, the spirits of the Nephilim, the, the, who were physically destroyed in the flood. But according to the extra biblical book of First Enoch, um, they were condemned. The Nephilim were condemned to wander the earth. Their spirits were uh, hybrids, neither. Uh, fully divine nor fully human. They were half and half, and so they were never meant to be. And so God condemned them to wander the earth until the judgment, tormenting mankind, always hungering, always thirsting, but never satisfied. Um, and this was the understanding, even into the Christian era, this was the understanding of the early church fathers up until about the 4th or 5th century, the early 5th century, with the early church fathers uh, Julius Africanus and Augustine, they were the ones who said, you know, this is just too weird. Really what the Bible says here in Genesis chapter 6 is not that angels came down and had relations with human women and uh, the women bore giants. No, no. The sons of God were the sons of Seth, who was the good son of Adam and Eve, who then married the wicked and evil daughters of Cain. Jim, to this day, that is still the default belief taught in Christian seminaries, even though uh, linguistically... And theologically, it really makes no sense. And it also ignores the context of the pagan neighbors of ancient Israel who understood who these Rephaim spirits were. They named them by name. And within the last 50 years, there are now texts showing that not only did they know who they were, but they actually venerated and worshipped these Rephaim spirits, the Rephaim, the spirits of the Nephilim who were destroyed in the flood. Now, does this, in connecting the dots here, are you then saying that so physically they were destroyed in the flood but then their spirits lived on in in a demonic context is that right yes, absolutely the israelites would have known them as demons but the uh, pagan neighbors of ancient israel the the amorites the canaanites believed that these dead that these spirits of the dead were their ancestors this was a regular part this was a a, a, a fundamental part of the world of the Amorite neighbors of ancient Israel. They believed that they literally had to summon their ancestors through a necromancy ritual, where you literally summon the dead by name once a month on the 30th of every month, which in a lunar calendar was the night when there was no moon. Because I guess even back then they understood that was the night when the veil between the worlds was thinnest. Hmm. They would literally summon their, their, their ancestors to a ritual meal where they would feed them bread and water or wine or something of that to that effect. Uh, those little statues, you might remember the story from the book of Genesis where Jacob, uh, Jacob's wife, Rachel, stole her household god, her father's household gods. Those were these little statues, and that's what they were for. They were for this ritual meal where on the 30th of every month, the, the oldest son, who was the heir to the family uh, household or the family fortune, would take on the responsibility of summoning the ancestors every month at, at this ritual called the Kispum. And they would they would smear little pieces of bread on the statues to feed the ancestors, and they would pour water onto the floor. Uh, why? Because their ancestors were buried under the floors of the houses. It's kind of a weird thing, but archaeologists have said, you know, if the Amorites had community cemeteries, we haven't found one yet, and they've been digging for 200 years in Syria and Iraq to try to find them. But they found plenty of plenty of bones beneath the ruins of the houses. Apparently, they didn't want grandma and grandpa to have to travel very far to get this ritual meal. This was so important that the oldest son was literally called the pourer of water because it was believed that if the descendants, if one's descendants, his children and grandchildren, failed to perform that monthly ritual, 
after you died, you were literally condemned to eat dust and clay for all eternity. You, you would starve. Hmm. And so this was considered a key part of Amorite life. But when Moses, God brought Moses and the Israelites to, uh, to Canaan, to the Holy Land, uh, this was forbidden. In fact, there's a, and again, you have to kind of read between the lines, but this was, this was, um, the, uh, the story of uh, Phineas, who in his zeal speared a prince of Israel and a daughter of Midian, one of their pagan neighbors. Uh, and it was believed, I always thought that it was because this uh, young Israelite and this uh, young Isra- Midianite princess were doing something they shouldn't have been doing together in the sight of all Israel, some sort of fertility rite or something. Uh, and God got angry and sent a plague that killed 24,000 Israelites on the plains of Moab before they'd even crossed the river into the Holy Land. Uh, and, and when you read Psalm 106, verses 28 and 29, you find out that's not it at all. It's that Israel was eating sacrifices offered to the dead. And that's what provoked God's anger. And when you start reading the Old Testament in this context and understand that this was a key part, an essential part of the neighboring, uh, the, the religion of their pagan neighbors, and that Israel was being drawn into this, uh, then suddenly you see things in Isaiah and Ezekiel that make a lot more sense. Fascinating. If you're just tuning in, our guest is Derek Gilbert. The book is Veneration, and the book is available over at Amazon.com. However, there's always a better deal. Isn't that right, Derek, if they go uh, to your publisher website? That's correct. Uh, SkywatchTVStore.com. There's a special offer, two offers, actually, uh, one that includes the book Veneration, the two-hour video tour of Israel, where we show you some of the places where this uh, struggle took place, uh, why the plains of Moab were so significant, um, plus Sharon's most recent novel called Realms of the Dead, which includes some of the research that we uh, uh, that we put into the book Veneration. Uh, that's for $35. Plus, there's a, a book from about 100 years ago, a classic scholarly work that uh, deals with the Hebrew view of the afterlife, which is really remarkable. Uh, Osterly is the name of the uh, the author, because he was working with a lot of the without a lot of the texts that we have available to us today. So uh, three books plus a two-hour DVD, which includes a bonus four-hour uh, disc with uh, additional teachings all throughout Israel as we went to this very site. Wow. And, uh, How much is that package? That whole package. Uh, that's, all of that for thirty-five. All of that for thirty-five dollars. Uh, there's a second package which includes all six novels of Sharon's Red Wing saga for one hundred dollars. So that's uh, uh, six, seven, eight books plus the DVD for one hundred dollars. Yeah, and I've I've had some of our listeners tell us they've ordered some of these larger packages and even like broken up the packages and given gifts with different pieces of the package. Um, I would probably be selfish and keep it all for myself, but some people uh, buy a second package to, to, to hand it out to people. So that's, again, what's the website again for the package deals? SkywatchTVStore.com. SkywatchTVStore.com. Now, back to this issue of making contact with the dead, and uh, tell me if I'm if this is totally out of the context of your book, but why is it we're seeing so much of that lately? Uh, I don't know. Aren't there a couple of guys that actually have ongoing TV shows about talking to the dead? I ran up into a lady just recently at a sandwich shop and um, she was all excited about going to some event 
where she was going to try to make contact with a dead relative. And she was just just bubbling over about this this thing she was going to. I don't remember, you know, growing up, I'm about your same age. I was born in 65. I don't remember any of this talking to the dead stuff until maybe the mid 90s, something like that. Is, is this in any way this interest in this uh, in our culture of talking to the dead? Is, is this sort of a precursor to all of this stuff? Absolutely. Absolutely. There was a resurgence in interest in talking to the dead in the 19th century, and uh, we, we brought that into the book. The uh, Fox sisters in New York State in the 1840s began, uh, kick, kind of kicked off what they called the spiritist movement, where they claimed that uh, strange noises knocking under the table were, you know, dead ancestors or dead relatives who were trying to communicate. And uh, even though the two, two of the sisters debunked themselves later they they finally got they felt guilty about it around 1888 and there was an interview published in one of the new york city newspapers but even with that by that point uh the movement had gathered so much steam that even though they debunked it and said no we were just cracking our knuckles we were you know you know surreptitiously knocking under the table to make these noises to fool people the true believers didn't want to believe it. Even Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who created the Sherlock Holmes character and wrote all those stories, was such a believer that he wrote a he wrote a history of the spiritist movement that was started by the Fox sisters. They didn't believe that the sisters had actually debunked it. But when you bring it into the modern day, uh, our present day, it's got a number of different faces to this. We we see a number of cultures where veneration of the ancestors never went away. Uh, Asian cultures, African cultures, in fact, in uh, uh, Madagascar, a friend of ours, wrote a book about this. Um, the the people there will will build houses for their deceased ancestors that are nicer than the ones that they're living in, uh, and then periodically, every couple of years, the ancestors will tell them, "You need to rewrap me," and so they'll bring the bodies out. They will rewrap the corpses and then dance with the ancestors to make them happy, and they will offer them regular gifts of food and drink and so forth. Uh, we see this with some of the folk saints of mexico like uh, santa muerte and jesus malverde um doesn't the catholic but, church but do this even, also with with deceased popes that they keep them uh in the catacombs and then on occasion bring them out well yeah for the for the veneration of the, the saints but it goes even beyond that jim that was one of the things that really surprised us as we were researching uh, the the veneration of ancestors in the ancient world. And we show in the book, again, from from peer reviewed secular research that was pub that's been published in academic journals, how the Greeks got their their religion of the demigods, worshiping the heroes like uh, Hercules and Theseus and Perseus. They, they got that from the Canaanites who were venerating the Rephaim, which was just the title of the spirits of the Nephilim who were destroyed back in Noah's flood. Uh, there is a direct correlation, you know, connect the dots. But when you got down to the time of the, the church, the early church, it, it didn't go away. This had become such a part of the culture all around the Mediterranean that even in the early Christian church, this was still going on. People would still go to the cemetery to have a, a ritual meal with the deceased ancestors. We found that uh, after Constantine legalized Christianity, in the early 4th century in Rome, the earliest Christian churches built in Rome after Constantine legalized the faith, including St. Peter's Basilica, were built right in the middle of cemeteries so this, this, this practice could continue. 
In fact, archaeologists working on some uh, renovations at St. Peter's Basilica a few years ago found what they believed was the sarcophagus of St. Peter. And the sarcophagus next to his had a libation tube in it so the ritual drink could be poured directly into the corpse. So this was going on even after. Wow. You know, and right around the, right the around the Vatican, there's also a number of these, um, you know, Roman style, um, you know, uh, ver- places that look like they were worshiping idols and so forth. Um, you know, these Colosseum, uh, not Colosseum, but uh, the, the various uh, Greek style um uh, altars mm-hmm. and so forth that you see around the Vatican, uh, several of those. And um, it, it's amazing that Christianity got sucked into all of this. But then, of course, if you study the New Testament and you read Paul's letters, uh, you know, the constant theme was, look, this is Christianity. You can't take this and add this now to all of your pagan uh, historical, uh, you know, beliefs. You, you just don't add this on to that. And they, they were not getting that, that this was something in place of that, not something to add to that. And that seems like something historically that uh, a, lot, a lot of the uh, the early church struggled with. Um, and the Catholic Church, you know, to this day still has some odd practices of um, people praying to dead saints and those kinds of things, which is clearly, you know, outside uh, of the Bible. Um, now, I want to switch gears. Well, actually, and, go ahead. Just one quick note. Yeah. Uh, that was something that Augustine did in trying to Christianize this veneration of the ancient demigods who were, by definition, Nephilim, children of, you know, Hercules was the son of Zeus, an immortal woman, and, and so on. Um, Augustine said, you know, the spirits of the, the dead saints can also intercede for us in the uh, in the natural realm and that's where the practice of venerating saints came from it you know i don't mean to step on any toes but the facts are what they are and uh, this is not me as a protestant trying to bash the roman catholic church we're just following the evidence where it leads and it's pretty clear that the practice of venerating the saints is just an outgrowth of the greek and roman hero worship which in turn was derived was taken from the canaanite worship of the nephilim yeah, it sure seems like it. Now, our friend Ellie Marzuli connects the dots and we end up talking about UFOs when we do an, a Nephilim interview with him. And I noticed from the back cover of your book that you also uh, get into that whole topic as well. And I'm curious your take on that. So I, I assume then that at some point these spirits take on a physical form again. Um, in 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 the end days, and um, Ellie Marzulli's take, of course, is the uh, the great deception where uh, the Christian Church is deceived into believing that these aliens uh, that come on these UFOs that they explain that there is no God and we created you by seeding the earth, and that becomes a great deception. Uh, where do you and your wife go with this whole topic of UFOs as far as the Nephilim are concerned? Well, we actually take it in a little different direction. Um, I, I know that L.A. is, uh, again, he's been following the, the, the trail of physical evidence. And certainly there is some evidence to suggest that there, that the abduction phenomenon is connected to some sort of genetic uh, experimentation. We took it in a different direction. Um, the contactee movement, which we separate from the UFO phenomenon, uh, uh, yes, there are lights in the sky that can't be explained. Um, many of those things do have natural explanations, but there's a small percentage, undeniably, of the unexplained lights in the sky that are 
craft that appear to defy the laws of physics. Uh, but the, the contactee and abductee phenomenon is something else entirely. We really separate the two. And that's what we focused on. If these demons, the spirits of the Nephilim destroyed in the flood thousands of years ago, are still with us today, and as Christians we accept that uh, demonic possession is a reality. Uh, our friend who went to Madagascar and witnessed some of this wrote a, wrote a book about it, uh, Reverend Dr. Robert Bennett, who's a Lutheran theologian, uh, about the, the, the reality of demon possession in the modern age, uh, those spirits are still with us. Now, when contactees claim that they're hearing telepathic messages from uh, uh, you know entities that are orbiting the Earth who traveled here from Zeta Reticuli, what are they really hearing from? And I think the bigger question is, if these creatures are so technologically advanced, they can cross the vast gulf of interstellar space. They somehow have solved the energy problem. They somehow have managed to survive the intense radiation that builds up when you're traveling at uh, you know, a, a high fraction of the speed of light. They've managed to overcome all of these monumental technological obstacles to crossing the abyss, the dark abyss of space, and yet they can't figure out how to work a webcam. Or, you know, flash their headlights or, or something. Right. Why is it always telepathic communication, which which really is spiritual communication? Yes. So we argue that the UFO phenomenon is just another manifestation of this demonic activity that's been with us since since the flood of Noah, that uh, these these entities are lying to us and trying to deceive us. They really don't care what we humans believe, as long as it's not the one thing that's true, which is that the only way to the Father is uh, through Jesus Christ. Right. Pick your poison. It doesn't matter which one it is. And uh, so exactly. I, I, I'm, I'm remembering now. So when we were at, uh, when we were at the Vatican, there was a lot of weird things at the Vatican, which I'll, I, I talk about in some of my shows, just that, that day of the tour, we, we had a private tour of the Vatican and just was sort of mind blowing in some bizarre ways. But then just steps away is, is that Pantheon. And then there's like a, a temple, I believe of Venus, um, the ruins are, are there not, you know, the temples have, have certainly seen better, better days, but, uh, uh, those, all of those, those temples and these different gardens and so forth, um, these are still around. And, and in your book, you make the point that there's a reason for that. Well, yeah. And, uh, interesting. We've got a friend of ours who's, uh, does a lot of work going to, uh, pagan gatherings just to do kind of undercover research and he said what's interesting is that uh, he's hearing more and more from these people who still worship these old gods of the norse or or greek pantheon that uh, their gods say you know the time has come to rebuild their temples i guess they're getting tired of meeting at holiday inn expresses or something but <laughs> those 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 temples and those gardens um one of the things we found it was really intriguing about gardens the concept of gardens in the ancient world you know babylon and uh what what is now syria and uh israel uh is that the gardens had, had a different purpose than we think uh they weren't just places to grow nice flowers or vegetables um they were places where the kings of these amorite kingdoms and in the case of uh, a couple of the Israelite kings, uh, the kings of Judah were to be uh, venerated and worshipped themselves because texts discovered in some of these ancient Amorite kingdoms showed that the uh, the goal of these these kings when they passed on was to join the council of the the, the Tanu, which is the root word from from Amorite 
from where the, the, the Greeks get the name of their old gods, the Titans. Hmm. So, uh, again, the, there's a lot of more cross-pollination in, in these, uh, these, these ancient cultures than, than we're aware of. Uh, but they, they want to join the Council of the Rephaim, the Assembly of the Rephaim, upon their deaths. So that was the purpose of the gardens. Um, and interestingly, the, uh, th- this appears to be, based on our research, a, a way of twisting the original concept of the garden, which is Eden, uh, into something occultic. The, uh, the fallen realm, the, the demons, the spirits of the Nephilim, and their progenitors, their fathers, the, uh, the watchers, the angels who sinned, according to Second Peter 2, verse 4, the angels from the sons of God from Genesis 6, trying to twist something that God had created originally as a place for uh, humanity and uh, the divine counsel, which is a term we see in Psalm 82, uh, these angelic beings that God created as sort of his heavenly court, uh, the, the Mount of Assembly, uh, Eden, a place for them to meet. Yes, it was a garden, Eden, but also a garden on a mountain. Um, this, this concept of the garden uh, and these these temples that uh, seem to be surrounded by these gardens was a uh, an attempt by the fallen realm to twist it into something to worship them and their demonic offspring uh, instead of the original the original design that God intended. Two more topics before we run out of time, and then we'll give you a minute or two to tell us about the TV show and the podcast and the other books. I want to ask you about the Tower of Babel. And um, you get into that in the book as well. What what does that have to do with the Nephilim? The Tower of Babel is interesting, and I go into this in in more detail actually in my first book, The Great Inception. But uh, it was an artificial mountain, and the reason that's important. This is something that was really explored in that book, The Great Inception: the importance of cosmic or holy or sacred mountains in the ancient world. Mountains were always considered the domain of the gods. And after the flood, um, Nimrod, who I identify as a Sumerian king by the name of Enmerkar, uh, decided he was going to build an artificial mountain in the heart of his kingdom, which was uh, in southeastern Iraq. Um, we've mistakenly identified Babel with Babylon. If Nimrod lived second generation after the flood of Noah, uh, he probably died maybe 1,200 years before Babylon was even founded. But Bob El in the Akkadian literally means God gate or gate of the gods. And that's what this uh, this temple was supposed to be. What's interesting about that particular location, and uh, in the first book I explain why it was at a city called Eridu, is that according to a Sumerian poem that still exists, was found about 150 years ago, it's been translated, uh, he was trying to expand and enlarge a temple at the city of Eridu for the god Enki, and uh, Enki, who was sort of the god of magic, the uh, god of uh, who brought all of the gifts of civilization to humanity, uh, he was the god of the Absu. His temple was called the E-Absu, which means House of the Abyss. So Nimrod was trying to build a gateway to the gods directly above a place that they thought was uh, uh, directly above the abyss. And, of mm. course, the abyss is where the Watchers, who in Mesopotamian were called uh, Apkalu, uh, th- that's where they had been condemned. And according to second, according to Peter and Jude in the New Testament, that's where those angels who committed that sin are now in chains in darkness waiting for the judgment. You mentioned the book of Enoch. There is a, a new book out by Michael Heiser about the book of Enoch. Are you familiar with that? Uh, yeah. 
Yes, uh, we have done a couple of interviews with Mike about that that will be on Skywatch TV in the month of March. Okay, great, because we readers we got a package from their from that publisher. We had a lot of books, and, and they're trying to book him with us, and we're going to have him on. But I've always been fascinated with the Book of Enoch. Of course, we're always clear to tell people it's not part of the, uh, the, the canon, as we call it, the official books of the Bible that we consider to be inspired. But yet it's a very useful book historically and also does fill in a lot of blanks. Um, is that uh, your take on the Book of Enoch? Would you agree with that? Yes, yes. Uh, there are references to it in uh, in the Bible. Uh, Mike Heiser has done uh, probably the best work on this so far. His uh, previous work, Reversing Hermon, shows how uh, how much of Christian theology really is about Jesus' forgotten mission, which was to, to reverse the evil that those watchers from Genesis chapter 6, those sons of God in Genesis 6, brought to the world. It wasn't just that they mingled their seed with the seed of humanity and created these hybrid offspring. It's that they taught us things that we weren't supposed to know. Um, occult uh, practices like uh, divination and uh, sorcery, witchcraft, uh, foretelling the future, things like that. So uh, the, the Book of Enoch helps us to understand a little bit more about what was in the minds of the prophets and the apostles. And, and again, some of this kind of bleeds over into the uh, research that we did for veneration as to the, uh, the the veneration of these demonic spirits and why they are still with us to this day. And then we'll close it out with our final question about uh, the Battle of Armageddon and and sort of the the end days and, and Bible prophecy as we sort of get to that moment. What role do the Nephilim play in that? Are, are they going to uh, reform with physical bodies and we will physically see them on the earth again, or will they still stay in the spiritual realm, but yet battle uh, Christ when he returns? Well, I think what is going to happen is uh, in Ezekiel 38 and 39, where he is given the prophecy of the war of Gog and Magog. And I showed in my last book, Last Clash of the Titans, why that battle is to be equated with the, the war that leads up to Armageddon. Um, by that point, Christians, regardless of whether we think we're going to be raptured out at the beginning, the middle, or the end of the uh, the Great Tribulation, I don't think we're going to be here because Armageddon is what the prophets of the Old Testament called the Day of the Lord, the Day of Yahweh. That's the day when his wrath is poured out on an unrepentant world. And the key is Ezekiel 39, verse 11, where God tells Ezekiel how this is all going to end. He's uh, going to prepare a place for burial in the in the valley of uh, or for the hordes of Magog, um, a place for burial in Israel, the valley of the travelers east of the sea. And the key was uh, hearing, and again, credit to Mike Heiser. I was listening to one of his studies on the book of Ezekiel, uh, pointing out that travelers in that verse, the valley of the travelers, is not talking about people on vacation uh, at the Dead Sea. It's talking about a spiritual entity. And secular scholars are aware for about the last 40 years now that uh, these Amorite texts from the ancient Amorite kingdom of Ugarit, which is uh, about the time of the judges, uh, about 1200 BC, there are texts during, in, in, in these texts, the, the Rephaim spirits are summoned through a necromancy ritual to the threshing floor of El or the tabernacle of El, which is their creator God. And uh, we show in the book why that is to be understood as the summit of Mount Hermon, which is where these sons of God, according to the book of Enoch, 
descended and made a pact to go ahead and defile human women and teach us all these things we weren't supposed to know. So the Rephaim are summoned to Mount Hermon, where uh, El, the creator God, is going to resurrect them. They're called in these, these Rephaim texts, the warriors of Baal. And in the New Testament, in uh, the book of Matthew and in the book of Revelation, Jesus identifies Baal as Satan. So Satan is the leader of this rebellion. Gog, in the book of Ezekiel, is the Antichrist, sort of his commander-in-chief. And these travelers are the Rephaim. These texts from this ancient Amorite kingdom literally call the Rephaim travelers, in the sense that they travel or cross over from one plane of existence, the realm of the dead, to the land of the living. So I think what Ezekiel's telling us here is that a demonic army is coming against Jerusalem, the uh, God's Mount of Assembly, the Temple Mount, and uh, they will be destroyed in this Valley of the Travelers, east of the sea, east of the Dead Sea. And interestingly, we see in the book of Deuteronomy where God tells Moses to climb Mount Nebo to get his only look at the Promised Land. He calls that mountain, Mountain of the Avarim, Mountain of the Travelers. Hmm. So for some reason, that area there where the uh, Israelites were eating sacrifices offered to the dead in the days of Moses, is the same place where Ezekiel says this army, which includes these travelers, these Rephaim spirits, uh, who I believe will inhabit human bodies, they will literally possess the army that's coming against Jerusalem. Uh, that is where the battle, according to Ezekiel, will be fought and where they will be destroyed. And exciting days are ahead. Uh, you know, I, when I look at the news every day, I'm thinking to myself, you know, I I never thought maybe the Lord would return as soon as I think he's returning. I mean, it, I still want to have grandkids and I've got other things I want to have happen in my life, but I'm OK with that, too, if the Lord wants to come back tomorrow. And, and it could be tomorrow. I mean, that's when we start seeing what's happening with Bible prophecy. The website is skywatchtvstore.com, or you can get the book at Amazon. It's called Veneration, Unveiling the Ancient Realms of Demonic Kings and Satan's Battle Plan for Armageddon. And uh, Derek Gilbert, tell us about the TV show, the podcast, all the other things you're doing, and how people that want to connect up with you, how they can do that, including social media or, or YouTube or other ways that you have of getting your information out. We have more websites and social media accounts that should be allowed by law, but that makes it harder <laughs> for them to shut us down. Um, right. Uh, Skywatch TV is a weekly broadcast that is carried on a number of Christian networks around the country. Uh, you can find those, uh, our broadcast schedule at the Skywatch TV website. Um, the, the broadcast shows are always posted there. Uh, we've got a free mobile app, which uh, you can use at, uh, it's for iOS, Android devices, even Amazon Kindle Fire tablets. It's a free download. It gets you access to that weekly program. My wife Sharon and I also produce a, week, a couple of other weekly shows, one called Sci Friday, which lately has been especially relevant with the uh, COVID-19 outbreak because Sharon's background is in molecular biology. Mm. So she's done excellent work in tracking this and trying to sift through the disinformation and misinformation from the solid information. Uh, so that has really become a, kind of an important show here, even though we've been doing it for five years now. Suddenly, it's just everybody's taking notice of it the last month or so. Uh, we also have been producing a weekly program called Unraveling Revelation, which also, since we're getting to Revelation 6 and the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, is suddenly a lot more relevant than we thought it would be. Uh, those are also at uh, the mobile app. Uh, we've got a uh, 
we've got a Roku channel, an Amazon Fire Stick channel, an Apple TV channel. Uh, and, of course, the website SkyWatchTV.com has links to all of those where you can find those and get those. Uh, our website, Sharon and me, is GilbertHouse.org, GilbertHouse.org, and that has links to all of our personal sites and social media accounts. Um, so like I said, if I went through all of them right now, uh, we can take it at least to the bottom of the hour. <laughs> I think there's enough ways f- through for what you just said for people to uh, find a, a way to connect up with you. Uh, Derek I, Gilbert, I, thanks so much for joining us. Always a fascinating discussion. We hope you come back again soon and visit. Anytime, Jim. I always enjoy it. Thank Th- you. Thank you very much, sir. God bless. Keep up the great work. Wow. I love having that guy on. Um, number one, he's got a fantastic voice for radio, doesn't he? Um, but uh He's patient with people like me who, who you know, I, I, I am I'm fascinated by all this Bible prophecy stuff. I am not an expert. I went to two years of Bible college. I have read a lot of books about Bible prophecy, but all of this still makes my head spin. And I'm still like a little kid. I, I still get chills when I think about this, when I think about the end days, the return of Christ, the, the, the battle of Armageddon, the Ezekiel 38 war, all of this stuff is going to happen. And uh, it's just incredible. And we're already seeing so many signs of Bible prophecy uh, coming to fruition all around us. Exciting days to be alive. Grab his book. It's called Veneration. And you can go to Skywatch. Uh, tvstore.com or pick it up on Amazon. And remember, if it's Sunday night, it's Jim Paris Live. We'll talk to you next time. So long, everybody. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.